reading today is taken from Luke chapter 5, verse 12 to 39, and continue on to chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 11. You may find this in page 1598 in the Pew Bible, 1598 to page 1600. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell down with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their weak sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lower him on his mat through the towels into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisee and teacher of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking this thing in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with the awe and say, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his, to his disciples, Why do they eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repent. They said to him, John's disciple often fast and pray. 
and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sew it on a old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new... Into, no new wine must be poured into new wineskin and no one after drinking old wine wants the new for he said the old is better. Once about Jesus was going through the grain field and his disciples began to pick some head of grain and rub them in their hand and eat the kernel. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read that David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and take the consecrated bread. He ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companion. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was severed. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law were looking for a reason to excuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the severed hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your word read to us. And we pray that Lord, these words may lodge in our hearts and do their work of transformation. Even as we hear these words, as we hear the stories, may they stay with us and help us to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What comes to your mind when the word authority is said? Would it be a person in a uniform directing other people? A judge sitting on a bench evaluating the evidence presented, giving judgment? A teacher in a class? 
How does one get authority? Is it by the clothes we wear? You know, some people naturally have an authoritative air about them. Uh, can we have the first slide, the next slide, please? Uh, the picture, the cartoon is one cowboy to another, talking to another and saying, I think it's your cap, Slim. The cows don't see you as an authoritative figure. So sometimes we look at um, what we wear, the clothes become the man or the woman. A story is told of Christian Herter when he was governor of Massachusetts in the 1950s. Now, his term was coming to an end. He was running hard for a second term in office. And so one day, after a busy morning chasing uh, votes and not having lunch, he arrived at a church barbecue. It was late in the afternoon. Herter was starving. And so as he moved down the serving line, he held out his plate and the woman serving chicken placed a piece on his plate. And then she turned to the next person in line. Excuse me, the governor said, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman told him, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. But I'm starved, the governor said. Sorry, only one per person. Generally, in general, Herter was a modest, unassuming man, but he was so hungry that he decided this time he may want to throw his weight around a little bit. And so he said, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And the woman said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Move along, mister. So even a server in a dinner line has authority over the governor, given the proper context. Last week, if you were with us, Pastor Jaya reminded us that disciples submit to the Lordship of Jesus. When disciples submit to Jesus, it means that he has authority over their lives and disciples live in obedience to Jesus. But Jesus' authority is not limited to just the lives of his disciples. When we read the gospel like the text that was read to us just, we find that Jesus has authority over things like illness, infirmity, that he has authority to forgive sins, the authority to reveal God to us, to tell us who or show us who God is, the authority over Sabbath, the Lord over the Sabbath. And in fact, after his resurrection, if you remember in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That was last week. Backtrack two weeks ago, Dr. Ku, those of you who were with us at Chinese New Year here, I hope you remember Dr. Ku preached on Jesus being God's 
anointed. And he said that to be anointed is to be authorized or set apart for a particular work or service. And if you look into the dictionary, authority means the power or right to control or to judge others or to have the final say in something. So Jesus is the one who is authorized, who does have power and the right to have control over all things and to judge all things. And that is because Jesus' authority comes from God through the Holy Spirit. And you remember this happened at his baptism. Luke records for us in chapter 4 that with this anointing of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' mission was to bring good news of liberty to all and to usher in the year of the Lord's favour. And immediately after Jesus says this in the synagogue, people get mad at him, but he gets away. And he goes on to demonstrate that authority in healing sickness, in casting out demons, and even in his teaching and preaching. In fact, in Mark, when he casts a demon out of a man in the synagogue, uh, the people's response was, this is amazing. What new teaching is this with authority? And so they equated Jesus' acts of power with his teaching and, and they recognized that authority. Yeah? So Jesus has the authority over anything that would keep people from experiencing God or which would hinder people from drawing near to God. In the text today, we see the demonstration of Jesus' power and authority over certain things. And the first uh, two texts, the first two uh, sections, talk about Jesus' healing. In biblical times, illnesses kept people away from God and from others. Those with skin diseases, the thing is when the Bible says leprosy or a leper, they could have suffered from other kinds of diseases. It was not really limited to leprosy. It was kind of a catch-all for skin diseases. But whatever it is, if you had a skin disease, you were a leper and you were called unclean. You were not allowed to be with the rest of the people and especially at worship. And so people with skin diseases, lepers they were called, were cut off from society and, as it were, from God. And if they wanted to actually come into a popul populated area like the town for whatever reason, they had to carry a small bell and ring it and call out, unclean unclean so that people could avoid them. On a practical level, this was so that others would not catch contagious diseases like leprosy and so on. But on another level, it marginalised and it made, it marginalised people and made them outcasts. And so 
perhaps this particular leper in the story that was read to us had heard about Jesus healing people. And so he took a great risk in approaching Jesus. Very humble, very unsure. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Unsure of Jesus, but having the faith that Jesus could do it. And Jesus welcomed him and touched him to bring the needed healing. You know, Jesus did not have to touch him because the implication, if you understood the law in those days, if you touched the leper, you would be made unclean. But Jesus reached out and touched the leper. And if you, as an author put it, if you use your imagination a little bit, you can imagine the uncleanness if it was in the way that people understood it then, the uncleanness creeping up Jesus' hands. But in this case, it was cleanness, so to speak, that flowed out from Jesus onto the leper and cleansed him. And this perhaps is what we could call the new wine which needed to be poured into new wineskins. The new wine that Jesus was the one who would come and cleanse people and heal people to be put into a new mindset, new wineskin. A new thing that God was doing. And people who were ill with skin diseases or any other diseases did not need to be cut off from God anymore because God had come and reached out to them. The second healing had something more to just physical healing, and we'll look at that in a short while. But for now, this healing involved more than the physical body. The second healing of the paralyzed man involved the heart. Jesus knew exactly what the paralyzed man needed. We're not told what the sin was, but when Jesus looked at that man, he realized or he saw that it was forgiveness more than anything else that the man needed. And so the first thing he did was to forgive the man of his sins. And often it is not just our body that needs healing. In fact, some of us have perfectly good bodies, but our hearts are ill. And so Jesus came to save the whole person. He didn't just come to save a little bit here, a little bit there. He came to transform us from the inside out. And more than anything else, it is our hearts that need transformation and healing. And one of the ways to transform and heal our hearts. In fact, the way to transform and heal hearts is forgiveness. And Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive sins. The Pharisees and teachers of the law in the time of Jesus were so zealous about keeping the law that they were very quick to label and cut off those who sinned. 
they would have nothing to do with them. Because again, that whole thinking that if they came into contact with them, they would get contaminated. But you know, gee, God's original intention has always then that has always been that Israel, as his people, a holy people, would share that with the other nations and bring God's light and holiness out. But because they themselves were so recalcitrant and sin-filled and, get the, and they got, kept getting into trouble, they ended up deciding that we would put boundaries to keep sinners out, to keep other nations out. And that's why when Jesus said that he had come to save not just the Israelites, but uh, the Jews, Jewish people, but the Gentiles as well, they got so mad. And they wanted to throw him off the cliff, if you remember uh, that text in Luke chapter 4. Jesus came to do what Israel failed, which was not just to save Israel and have them as God's chosen people, but also to reach out to the other nations. And that's why you and I are here today. Jesus reached out and touched the lepers. Jesus went out and hung out with sinners. And in fact, he called one of those who were considered a huge, one of the biggest sinners to follow him, a tax collector. No rabbi would even come near a tax collector. But Jesus went to Levi and said, come, follow me. Somehow, sinners felt safe to be with Jesus. Philip Yancey has a story that has always stayed with me and it's caught me and it has challenged me. And I may have shared this before. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells this story. He, he told this story in a previous book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And it, was, it is a true story and he says it continues to haunt him. And he had heard this story from a friend who works with the down and out in Chicago. And this is the story that the friend told him. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. 
I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. And then Philip Yancey says this, What struck me about my friend's story is that women, much like this prostitute, fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer felt, feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? Jesus ate with sinners. They felt safe with him. And in the Middle East, even until today, when you ate together at table with someone, it meant at the least an extension of friendship and at the most an offering of the intimacy of companionship. Jesus loved the sinner. He hated the sin. And Jesus could differentiate between the two. He extended forgiveness to those who came to him and reconciled them with God. What would happen if that woman walked in here today and spoke with one of you? Be honest. I would be wary wouldn't you? Don't let her near the children. And someone commented to me that the church does not understand unconditional love. The church is selective in who they love because unconditional love means across the board, no conditions attached. You realize that the paralyzed man never did confess his sin. Luke doesn't record it, at least Luke doesn't record it for us. But Jesus knew his heart and declared forgiveness for his sin. But what played a part in this was also the faith of his friends. They trusted Jesus' authority, and so they brought his, their friend to Jesus. And praying for our friends, our loved ones, bringing our friends and loved ones to Jesus in prayer is important. Likewise, when we come to Jesus, He sees our hearts and forgives our sins, reconciling us to God, because sin is what separates us from God. Sin causes eternal death. And Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and bridge that gap between us and God. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to extend His love 
to those who have sinned and who need forgiveness. How would we know if they have repented if they don't say it? We don't. But the Holy Spirit does. And that's why we need to walk in a close relationship with Jesus to be able to sense and hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we reach out to others, as we minister to others. I was away the last two days to attend a seminar called The Keys to Transformation at Elijah House. Some of you may have attended the one we had last year here, September 30th, October 1st. Their ministry is a ministry of reconciliation and transformation through prayer. And so as they minister, they minister in small groups. They don't lecture in a big group and then ask people to come for prayer. They minister in small groups. And the trained group leaders receive us and listen to us non-judgmentally. They provide a safe space so that we can share what is in our hearts. And the acceptance and welcome is very tangible as all of us came together. And as we worked through our issues and confessed, renounced our sins and did whatever we had to, they pronounced God's forgiveness to each person as ministers of uh, prayer ministers. Huh? And so they gave us a safe space to work through what we needed. And even though we did not know the other participants in the group, they were strangers, but we became friends because of the safe space that was provided, because of the, ex of the unconditional acceptance that was extended to each of us. And so each of us drew a little closer to God as a result. And if you have the chance, go look at their website, Elijah House. They have different seminars at different times. Think about going for this. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins so that we can be forgiven and be reconciled to God. And God loves us with no strings attached. Some of us may find that hard to believe. Too good to be true, but it is true. You and I, people need forgiveness and they need to know that our guilt is removed. And that's why whenever we have the intercessory prayer, we have confession before that. And in some other churches, they have a formal prayer of confession and word of assurance or pardon. And if you were to turn to the hymnal, page 12, we always begin Holy Communion after the invitation with confession and pardon an opportunity to give all of us to confess our sins and receive forgiveness. And so that's that little bit, all pray in silence, where we make our personal confession to God and receive forgiveness when the word of pardon is proclaimed. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners that proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. 
And you notice that the response from you all is not hallelujah. It is in the name of Jesus Christ you are forgiven because you are declaring that forgiveness back to the minister who says that because the minister needs forgiveness as well. And then after that, all together, we give glory to God. Amen. So be it. You know, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were so meticulous and conscientious about keeping the law to the last dot, the last letter, that they began to create all sorts of rules and bylaws and regulations in order to make sure that they don't fall out of the law. The actual law in the Bible, in the scriptures, was 613. When they started putting the regulations, the bylaws, the site rules and the definitions and all that, it came to a huge amount. And if you remember, Jesus said, you place a burden on people that you yourself cannot carry, but expect other people to carry. You know, the law on Sabbath states, I'm reading from Deuteronomy, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, or your male or female slave, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, for the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Their intention was good, very good. But in their zeal and meticulousness and conscientiousness and scruples to keep the law, they ended up keeping the letter of the law, forgetting entirely uh, the spirit of the law, why God gave that law in the first place. So in their zeal, they began to look at it and said, okay, uh, we need to not work. What does it mean to not work? And so something like harvesting. Now that's work because... Uh, you, you go out, you harvest the crops and all that. So, uh, but then uh, you had the poor because there is also a law that allowed the poor people to pull off grains, to pluck grains to eat because uh, God looks after the poor and so he provides for them through those who have. And so they were not to harvest everything clean but to leave stocks for the poor to pluck and have grain. So plucking the grain was fine. That's not work. But when you begin to rub the grain and take off the husk, that's work. That's a really fine line. Yeah, one 
0.001 millimeter of a line drawn right through. But to be able to eat the grain, you had to get rid of the husk. You can't eat the husk. And so the disciples were doing that. And the Pharisees came down on them like a ton of bricks. By their definition, the disciples had broken the law on Sabbath. But Jesus put things back into perspective. It's not about keeping the letter of the law. Sabbath was about rest and meeting the needs of the body and soul. And so the law was given so that people could live well. They could live in righteousness within the boundaries of God's ways. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in their zeal made it a burden. And so Jesus declared that the law is subject to his authority. He is Lord over Sabbath. And his authority was about bringing the goodness of God to people, to do good, not evil, to heal and not kill. And so Jesus had no qualms about even healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. You know, we look at that and we say it's a no-brainer. Of course you would do that. And even in our hospitals, the emergency departments are open. I know because I had to go there on a Sunday, having cracked my toe. We take it for granted. But at the time, you see, because Christian values have influenced laws and civilization and so on. And, and so for us, it's natural that first aid healing should be given on a Sunday, even on a Sabbath. But for the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the highest good was in keeping the law. Not that they didn't care for the people, they did. They did care for the sick. And there were laws or rules and regulations that allowed for emergency cases, life-threatening cases to be helped. But when this was not a life-threatening thing, the withered hand, he had lived with it for so long, he could surely wait one more day to do the healing. But it kept people from God and it kept God's grace from people. In this case, it is also a matter of timing. The man was there, Jesus was there. Why don't he carry out that healing? Jesus has the authority to put back the practice, how the law was to be practiced and lived out in its rightful place. If you remember, Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and with him fulfilling the law, we are given the ability to live out that law in God's grace. We need rules. It's not that the whole law is abolished and we can live as we please. We need rules because things are to be done in an orderly manner. God is a God of order. But we need to be attentive to God so that people are received and accepted 
as Jesus would accept them and help them to draw near to God, not be hindered. There are many things which can keep us away from God. Some, our own doing. Others are perhaps circumstances or imposition by other people. But whichever one it is, Jesus has the authority to overcome them and draw us back to God. But let me say this, Jesus will not force his way into our lives to do that even if he has the authority to bring healing and transformation and reconciliation. You and I have to say yes. John, in that vision in Revelation, Jesus tells him, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me and opens the door, Jesus doesn't say, I stand at the door and knock and I'm coming in anyway. We have to say yes to Jesus and when we do, he will come into our hearts to do his work. And John, in the gospel he wrote, tells the way to let Jesus in. Those who love me will keep my word and my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. And so, again, getting into God's word, knowing God's word, uh, getting God's word into our hearts and living that word with the help of the Holy Spirit. And, and it kind of goes on, it takes us deeper into our relationship with Christ because then he lives and resides in our hearts and draws close to us. Perhaps some of us here today feel that there is a wall between us and God. Perhaps some of us feel not a wall but a gap. Uh, God seems to be a little far away. Whatever it is, if we want that gap to be bridged, if we desire that wall to come down, and sometimes our hearts are deceitful, our minds tell us that's what we want, but deep in our hearts we may not want it. And so we need God to help us to see and to reveal to us whether that is true or not. But whatever it is, if we deeply desire to bridge that uh, gap, that chasm, if we want that wall down, Jesus has the authority to do it. But we have to say yes. And so today, I want to invite you, for those of you who desire to draw closer to God, I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus. Let us pray. Some of us may feel distant. Some of us may feel that we are blocked. Something is blocking us from God. And if you are, I want to invite you to speak to Jesus about that. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. God, I feel there's this gap. I feel there's this wall between us. And I really want to bring that wall down. I want that gap to be bridged. Would you please 
do that, Lord Jesus. Just very briefly, and Jesus hears us. May I ask everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads. 